What a wonderful day to worship the Lord together. This coming Wednesday evening, I'll be in Ulaga doing a Wednesday night summer series, but one of my greatest blessings for the evening will be that Brother Johnny Cobb will be presenting his first adult Bible class here. So even though I'm not going to be here to enjoy that, you all enjoy, all enjoy that for me. See, I can say that. The Wednesday night summer series topic in Ulaga that I've been asked to address is the Bible and the workplace. The Bible and the workplace. However, this lesson could just as easily be titled the Bible and the marketplace or the Bible in almost any other place. But you're going to hear the same sermon they're going to get in Ulaga Wednesday night, give or take. Now, before we begin, as most of you know, I did not grow up in the Lord's Church. Did not grow up in the Lord's Church and hence did not go to preaching school or anything like that, fresh out of college. I drove tractor trailer for over 20 years and I made my mistakes. As a new Christian, didn't always handle things right, but God was very patient and God granted me the time and the study and what I needed in order to grow. And hopefully I did some and I want to share with you some of those sorts of experiences a little later on in the lesson. The second thing that I need for you to know as we begin this lesson <coughs> is that I am not against taking the Bible to the workplace. You may think so before we get done, but again, just so that there's no mistake, I am not against taking a Bible to work with you. Matter of fact, I think it's a good idea. As a matter of fact, I've done it myself. So don't get the wrong idea as we go through this lesson today. Because the point about taking the, the Bible into the workplace is this. Doing that alone doesn't necessarily accomplish a positive outcome. A person that just simply takes a Bible to work does not necessarily bring about a positive result. In fact, if we're not careful, taking a Bible to work can lead to a worse reputation for Christians and Christianity overall, for consideration's sake. Just because a person takes a literal, physical, hard copy of the Bible to work, lays it on their desk or whatever, doesn't necessarily mean that they know or live what it says. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're living a life that is reflecting the truth that is in that Bible just because it's there on the desk or wherever it may be in the workplaces. If you watch any TV at all and you see some of these commercials or you happen to see some of these previews for shows quite often, you will see people with some of the most immoral lifestyles, the most immoral dress, and they got this big cross hanging there like it symbolizes something. But what the cross symbolizes and what they're living are two totally different things. And it can be the same with the Bible if we're not very careful. Matter of fact, when I was a teenager and I had a job before I ever got my tractor trailer license, I was working with this gentleman and he took his Bible to work with him. And so being a little bit interested maybe in that sort of thing, I started talking with him and we had conversations and 
One night at his house, I got down and said a prayer, supposedly saving me and welcoming Jesus into my heart, which is nowhere found in the Bible. So my point is this. Just because he carried a Bible to work did not necessarily mean that he knew the Bible. And so we have to be careful with that. <laughs> then there's the whole electronic age thing. You know, some people think to take a paper copy of you know, any book to work that you're old fashioned or outdated, sort of like me and my flip phone, but we'll just move on. I suppose we could, you know, have the Bible laying there sort of as window dressing, some do, sort of like the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 5 did with their phylacteries, but, but my point is simply this. Just taking one to work doesn't necessarily mean anything. In fact, it can bring about a worse reputation for Christianity in general. But there's something that I want to emphasize with this lesson because I believe the Word of God does as well when it comes to the Bible in the workplace. Let's see if we can discover what it is. Turn with me to Ephesians 6. There are three texts, three sections of scripture that typically come to mind when we start talking or thinking about the workplace. And let's see if we can look at those three passages of scripture and discover what I really want to emphasize with the beginning part of this lesson at least when it comes to the Bible in the workplace. Three passages typically come to mind when we're talking about a Christian's responsibilities therein. One of them is Ephesians chapter six, beginning at verse five where it says, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Now I know this was written about bond servants and you know, volunteer slaves as it were, but this has application to those of us who work for a higher authority, work for a boss. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, number one. Number two, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. What does that mean? That means work for those people as if you're working for Jesus. Because in effect, you are, as we shall see. He goes on to say, not with eye service as men pleasers. In other words, not just doing what you know the bosses want you to do when they're looking over your shoulder. Not just with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Work as a bond servant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That's how we are to work for those that we work for. From the heart, as if we're doing it for Jesus Christ. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. What is that telling us? Work as if Jesus were your boss, because Jesus sees everything that's going on, and you really are working for him. Because you're a Christian, you bear that name, you're representing all that that stands for. So do it with sincerity, fear and trembling, and those sorts of things. The other text that we would turn to is in Colossians chapter three, verses 22 through 24 very similar message, but another one of these passages that comes up when we think about the workplace and our responsibility as Christians therein. Colossians 3, 22 through 24, again he begins, bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Now that's obviously not if they're asking you to do illegal things, we understand that. As 
Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Hmm, where have I heard that? Very similar to Ephesians, isn't it? And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Again, do it as if you're working for Jesus. Not, not some man you or woman that you merely know or something like that, but do it like you're working for Jesus. Knowing, verse 24, that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. You see it right there? He said, you're working for Jesus. Remember that. Don't lose sight of that. No matter who the person is, you're working in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, if you would please. 1 Peter chapter 2, if you would please. Beginning at verse 18, look at what it says. Well, you just don't understand. I have a miserable boss. I have a tyrant for a boss. Sometimes we do. We do. Verse 18, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief. It's because of conscience toward God. It's because you're a Christian. That's why sometimes you put up with, or you're supposed to put up with, this harshness if it is necessary, if you find yourself in that situation. It's because of God and conscience toward God. This is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Sometimes we do suffer wrongfully in those situations. But he goes on to say, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? In other words, if you deserved it, you deserved it. But that's not what he's talking about. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. You know what he did? Trusted God. God, I'm going to do the right thing and leave this all up to you. Now, as we read those three passages, did you notice how carrying a copy of the scriptures is not found in any of them? When he's talking about this, did you notice how carrying a copy of the word to the workplace is not even mentioned in any of those passages? That instruction to carry a copy of the Bible to work, as it were, is as non-existent in those passages about, or that apply to our working for others, as a sinner's prayer of faith for salvation is also not seen. But what do all three of those texts repeatedly emphasize and have in common? What do all three of them emphasize and have in common? that instead of carrying a copy of the Word of God to work, that Christians continually carry out the Word of God at work. That's what it's about. That instead of carrying a copy to work, we carry out 
the Bible at work with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have you ever heard the saying, you may be the only Bible some people ever read, or a similar saying to that? You may be the only Bible some people ever read. What about that old line, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day? I was going through some old resources the other day, and I came across a copy of that little poem. I'd like to read it to you. <clears throat> I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely show the way. The eye is a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but your example is always clear. I soon can learn to do it if you will let me see it done. I can see your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lectures you deliver may be fine and very true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. For I may misunderstand you and the teaching that you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. Brethren, example is so absolutely important. Example is so critically, critically important. Sometimes when we have sought to evangelize, or if, if you're like me, sometimes you've heard of people seeking to evangelize. And they'll go and they'll talk to somebody, or maybe you've done it yourself, and they'll go and they'll talk to somebody, and they'll knock on the door and they'll get to talking, and the person will ask, well, you know, okay, so you want to have a Bible study? What church you go to? Well, I go to, you know, Church Christ over at thus and such. Huh. I don't want, I know somebody used to go there, and this is how they behaved, and no thanks, I don't want anything to do with it. Example is everything. People watch how you live. As a matter of fact, example, I, I want to share with you six of the 10 times in the New Testament that the word example is used. I want to show you how important it is by showing you not only the texts, but to have you look at who wrote it or who said it. How important is example? Jesus Christ himself said the night before he was crucified in John 13 and verse 15, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. That was after he washed their feet. Example. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3 and verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern. Paul was willing to stand back and say, if you want to see how it's supposed to be done, follow my example. Now, Paul wasn't perfect, but Paul knew that his example was worthy of imitation and in fact said that more than once. He also said in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 9, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. He wrote in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise your youth. Young people, Paul's writing to young Timothy, and he brings that up. Young people, you too, your example is so crucial, so critical to your peer group, to those around you, to everybody. Listen, 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, 
in purity. He said, young Timothy, be an example of all of those things, not just one or two. The word of God, the word that comes out of your mouth, living the word of God, your conduct, your love, your purity, your faith, all of it. Be an example, be a leader. People are looking at you to see what it's supposed to look like. James said in James 5.10, my brethren, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. And finally, Peter said in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you were called, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus, Peter, James, John, Paul, all mentioned. Example, example. You think that's important then? Incredibly so. But not a one of them was ever reported. I, I know that they had divine, divinely inspired knowledge and, and all of that. But none of them were ever reported as taking a copy of the Bible to work with them, as it were. But you know what they all did stress? Every one of them stressed living it. Living it. And I think a good way to look at it, this is, this is kind of an idea that works for me and, and I hope it does for you. One way to look at it, the Word of God came to us in two different forms. I want to say versions, but then we'll start mixing up New King James and all of that. The Word of God actually came to us in two forms. Now, the first thing we think of when we hear Word of God is what? It's the written Word of God, right? When we hear the term Word of God, we think Bible, the written Word. And that is God's Word. Every word is divinely inspired. Yes, that is the Word of God. But that is not the only form that the Word of God came to us in. This is the written Word of God. But the Word of God also came to us in human form, did it not? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Did not the word of God also come to us in a walking, living, breathing form? Yes, yes. Jesus was the complete embodiment of the word of God. It was if, if, if God took everything that he ever had to tell us and he put it in a package and put it in human form, that's what Jesus, didn't Jesus live? Wasn't he the walking word of God? Yes, he was. The word became flesh. And so the word of God came to us walking, Jesus Christ, and it came to us written through the spirit and what the spirit divinely inspired. Now, my point is this. If we want to truly get them that is our co-workers into the written word of God, if we want to get them into the written word so they can be saved, I believe that we must first show them a walking version of it. In other words, we must show them that we are different because we're never gonna get them into the written copy unless we are an example, a walking, living, breathing copy of what Christianity ought to look like. That's what the Bible means when it says, let your light so shine before men. Live it, be it, be a walking example of what the word teaches. 
be all of those things that we talked about in Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, and Colossians 3, 22 through 24, and 1 Peter 2, 18 through 23. When John the Baptist was preaching repentance, do you know that part of John's message was that you need to be different in the workplace than you've been? That's part of John's message. When they came out to be baptized by him, Look in Luke 3. See what he said. Kind of pass right over this and not think it has anything to do with, with the workplace, but it has everything to do with it. At least in a few verses. Luke 3, beginning at verse 7. He said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you, God's able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You've got to bear fruit, okay? So the people, when they heard this, they said, Well, what do we do then? How do we bear fruit? First thing he addresses is sharing what they have. He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Now he's going to address how they deal in the workplace. He said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. He's not done. Likewise, the soldiers asked him and said, What do we do? And he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Two out of three things that he addressed was how they were to be different in the workplace than they had been. It could be said, certainly, that Jesus' greatest work, the work that Jesus came here to do, there were many parts of God's plan, every part of God's plan, he came and he fulfilled, but it could be said that part, the greatest work that Jesus did while he was here was dying on the cross for our sins. That was the ultimate work that he did and I want to look at Jesus in that moment and consider that as his greatest work and his workplace on Calvary. Luke 23, please turn there. In Luke 23, beginning at verse 32, it says this. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. Luke 23, verse 32. Now verse 33, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. We would pause here for just a moment to note that in Matthew's account, in Matthew 27, 44, it says even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him. According to Mark's account of the gospel, in Mark 15, 32, it says even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Both Matthew and Mark tell him that these tell us that these criminals both revile Jesus. You with me? Look at the next few verses. What happened? Verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. They divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Now, consider for the sake of this lesson that this is where Jesus is at work, his greatest work, his workplace, if you will. We have two gospel writers that tell us these two robbers crucified with him reviled him. But they saw, verse 34 of Luke 23, they saw Jesus praying for his persecutors instead of cursing them. They saw the rulers sneer at him, the soldiers who had beat and scourged him, mock and make fun of him, verses 35 and 6 of Luke 23. And yet, for those people, for those people, Jesus prayed. Would that make an impression on you? It still makes an impression on me. Apparently, it made an impression on them. Jesus, in his greatest work ever accomplished, didn't carry a Bible. He simply lived it. What was the outcome? Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What happened? Jesus lived the way God wanted him to, and it made an impression that would turn one of those two criminals around. As he watched that unfold, as he watched Jesus love those people despite how they treated him, as, as he watched Jesus pray for those who had driven the spikes through him, who had put him in that place, that made an impression on him that changed his life. Jesus lived what he had taught. Jesus practiced what he had preached. That is an essential point about the workplace, the marketplace, or any place. And I know it sounds cliched, but we must practice what we preach because God, as well as the world around us, wants nothing to do with high-handed hypocrisy. What had Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount? What had he taught? Pray for your enemies and forgive those persecute you, then you'll be sons of your Father in heaven. He had taught it. And when the time come, despite the pain, he lived it. He prayed for them. In Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, if you'd turn there, it says the same thing, if I may paraphrase, you better be practicing what you're preaching. He says in Romans 2, 17 through 24, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. You know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. You're confident that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. He said, you're convinced that you're the person to lead others, to teach them. Then he goes through a list. He says, you therefore who teach another. Do you not teach yourself? You who preach a man should not steal. Do you steal? And he goes through this list and look what he says at the end in verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because they were teaching that they knew what God wanted, but they weren't living it. And he said, therefore, those that don't know God, they want nothing to do with God. They blaspheme his name. It is those very vital, essential, and necessary differences between you as a Christian and those who are not 
that must be in evidence as evidence of your new and changed life. Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Go back with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment, would you? Let's see what led up to those verses we read earlier. 1 Peter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we've already read verses 18 through 23 about being an example, following Jesus' example. But look what precedes that. Look what leads up to that. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now you're the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. For that reason, verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, and yes, that includes the workplace, obviously, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. For this is the will, you want to know what God's will is? This is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Because on in verse 17 to say, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Remember when we were first converted, 1985, Karen and I were converted, we were baptized into Christ. I drove tractor trailer, I used to drive like a wild man, like a wild man. Faster I drove, more money I made, less cops caught me. So I wanted, as a young Christian, to go out and buy a radar detector. I protect my job, I could justify it. At that point in time, as a young couple, our washing machine was broken. Karen wanted a new washing machine. I thought my radar detector was more important. So I called the brother that we were studying with in the church, and I said to him, Karen wants this, and I want this, but we can only afford one. But I really need this radar detector. Very simply, the brother said to me, you ever read Romans 13, 1 through 6? Read it and tell me what you think. I read it. Says to obey the law. Karen got her washing machine. Because like 1 Peter chapter 2, it said, submit yourselves, obey the law, do the right thing. Now listen, do you know how strange it is when you're with a bunch of truck drivers who, who make a living speeding and all of a sudden you slow down? What is wrong with him? And it cost me a lot in some ways. You know, when we'd leave the plant in the morning, three or four bus trucks, and we're all going to the same place, hours down the road, we got out onto the main turnpike. I'd hit the speed limit, and that'd be it, and they keep her on going. Only well, took them about 10 minutes to get out of radio range, just traveling all by myself. Oh well. God wanted me to do that, and I could read where God wanted me to do that. As I said, it cost me a lot. They didn't understand 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5. They didn't understand my change of behavior. Actually, it saved me a lot more than it cost me. There was a time later on when I rolled the tractor trailer over, loaded. We had a little computer on board, and my boss took me in later. I destroyed that rig. Not proud of it, but I did. Boss took me in later and said, do you know, 
If you'd have been going two miles an hour over the speed limit instead of two miles an hour under the speed limit, we could have fired you because we could have said you were speeding, but they couldn't find anything wrong. And so, because they could find absolutely no reason to fire you for work Monday morning. All the credit, glory, and honor belongs to God because as a Christian, I had slowed down. If it had been prior to me becoming a Christian and slowing down, I'm telling you what, the computer on the truck would not have said two miles an hour under. I'm not sure how many over, but it certainly would have said two miles an hour under. Matter of fact, it gained me a lot more than a job. By far, one of the greatest savings was in souls. There was this man who came to work where I worked. He was a spare. Spare drivers had to be called in on a few minutes' notice, take whatever truck was there, and he'd come into work one day, and he would later tell me that some of the boys told him, don't take Doug's truck, because it stops at every church building it goes by. Do you know what? That intrigued him. We started talking. He came from a long line of Baptists. We started talking the scriptures, and I invited him to study the Bible. And that brings me to the second essential point that we've got to be aware of in the workplace, that it is just as absolutely necessary as being a living example of the word of the living God in the workplace that we are ready to give an answer from and then get people into the written word of the living God in the workplace. In order to complete the salvation of souls from the workplace process, the word of God must occur in both its carried out as well as its carried in and opened up forms. There's a good brother named Jason Hilburn in Baker, Florida. He wrote an article in a recent bulletin he sent me, and at first it's going to seem to contradict everything I've said in this lesson. But if you listen really close, you're going to find out that it complements perfectly everything I've said in this lesson. Listen to what he said. A few excerpts. <laughs> As I said, at first it's going to sound like it contradicts, but it really doesn't. He says, perhaps you have heard someone say, I would rather see a sermon than hear one any day. While the intention behind that statement may be good, one must be careful that he does not overemphasize morality, emphasize morality, while minimizing the power of God's word. Yes, God condemns hypocrisy and commands his children to do good works and live holy lives. However, Christ did not simply command his disciples to go forth and live good moral lives in front of the lost to save them. He commanded them to go preach the gospel and baptize people. The Lord's church has the most pre precious message man has ever heard. But if we are not spreading that message, we have failed. Living a morally pure lifestyle may get someone's attention in a positive way, but that alone is not enough. They will never be converted from lost to saved without being exposed to the rightly divided written word of God. Perhaps some Christians who live morally are not as evangelistic as they should be because they know how controversial the truth is. The lost need to hear that baptism really is necessary for salvation, which is controversial to those in denominations. They need to hear that there is only one church purchased by and authorized by Christ, which is also very controversial. The lost need to know about the New Testament pattern for worship, 
that God hates sins like homosexuality and abortion and the many other truths that will very likely upset them because of their current lifestyles or beliefs. Teaching people these things is much more difficult than simply living a moral lifestyle. Most people will not get upset with you for living a good life, morally, but many will get upset when they realize that you are teaching or what you are teaching implies that their beliefs and practices are wrong. This controversy and threat to personal relationships is a risk Christians must be willing to take, even if it causes their deaths. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Church needs to come to life and be evangelistic. Simply living morally and being kind to others is not being evangelistic. The word evangelism has the word angel in the middle of it. An angel is a messenger, and if children of God are not spreading the message of God's word, they are not evangelizing. Christians must both live pure lives and teach people how to be faithful Christians. What a beautiful point. He's absolutely right. The success of the Bible in the workplace, and that's what we all want, the success of the Bible in the workplace depends completely on our understanding this is a two-part process. Both elements are absolutely essential. It's like, it's like faith and works, okay? Must we have both faith and works to be saved? Yes. Will faith without works save anyone? No. Will works, good works without any faith, save anyone? No. They, they are both absolutely essential components, right? It's the same thing with belief in baptism. Will simply believing without baptism save anybody? No. Will simply being baptized if you don't believe save anybody? No. It takes both belief and baptism. It's a two-part process. Brethren, the Bible in the workplace is a two-part process, and neither one by itself is going to work. Number one, we must be able to live the example in sincerity and truth and be the, be the, the moral and the pure and the the Christ-like people God wants us to be, to live that Bible. But that alone won't get it done. People aren't going to be saved by watching us live what God's Word says. It takes part two. What's part two? When they do see us, and they do ask questions, why, do you, why don't you drive, why don't you ride with the rest of them? Let me tell you. That's an open door. What's the matter? You don't like us anymore? You don't convoy with us? No, I can tell you why. I found something a whole lot better than speeding down the highway. Want to hear about it? That's part two. What's part two? Part two is always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the hope that is within you. We live in such a way as to make them ask, what is with you? Part two, take them to the scriptures and tell them. Bible in the workplace is a two-faceted situation. Living it without teaching it is going to save nobody. Living it without teaching it is going to save nobody. Jason Hilburn is right. But teaching it without living it? Probably worse, Romans 2, 17 through 24. Whatever happened to John and his wife, this spare, this spare whose dad had died a Baptist, 
had others in his family that believed that doctrine. Whatever happened to them? By the grace and the power of Almighty God and that alone, all the glory goes to God, by the grace and power of God and that alone, we began a Bible study. By the grace and power of God alone, I had the history and the integrity and the reputation at work by that point to back up the words that I taught. I could look at him and say, when he asked the question, well, what does the Bible say about this? Well, how come you don't drive like everybody else? Because the works, by this point, were a little more in line with the word. By the grace and power of Almighty God and that alone, he and his wife were both eventually converted to Christ, became members of the Lord's church, became hard workers in the Lord's church for many, many years by the grace and power of Almighty God and that alone, at least three other employees came to church from that trucking company. Number I had Bible discussions with, and the last time we were home, last time we were back home, one of those other couples that had been converted as well many years ago was still faithful and in worship. Brethren, let's make sure, absolutely sure, that whether we ever carry a written copy of the Word of God into the workplace or not, that we are always carrying out a living copy of the Word of God in the workplace, no matter what. And then when those comments and questions come, why are you so different from everybody else? Why did you, you know, it was only a dollar and 30 cents, you know, you could have charged the company. Why did you pay it? All of those questions, when they come about, we need to take full advantage of every opportunity. We need to create opportunities to slide our Christianity into the conversation so that when those people ask us questions, when we push them to ask us questions, we must be sure that we are ready, willing, able, and anxious to invite them to study the Bible with us personally, personally, to get them into the Word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. If you're here this morning, some of the things that I've said sound a little strange, besides my main accent. I'm told I have an accent, but you folks have an accent. If you're here this morning, some of the things that you've heard, maybe it's the first time you've heard them, maybe they sound a little strange, a little different. There are many, many people here who would love to sit down and study God's word with you if those words have sounded different. We would love to involve you in a Bible study so that you can learn God's will, not ours. We're not going to give you our opinion. We're going to give you the word of God. Maybe you're somebody here this morning that has studied and you've come to that point and you understand that in order to be saved and have your sins forgiven, you need to, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. You need to change your mind and start living for God and be cleansed of the sins you've committed living a different way. Whatever you need may be this morning, we encourage you to come forward as we stand. And